All right, good to see you guys on Thanksgiving Sunday. It's usually, we call it church light on uh, Thanksgiving Sunday. Most people are traveling. I know some of our folks are away, some of our folks are sick, but it's great to see you guys all here today. I have great news for the kids. You guys are dismissed. So uh, I think it, what, teacher Heather today is taking you out. And for the youth group, even better news, you guys are dismissed as well. Pastor Chris is going to rescue you. And uh, if you're visiting with us today and you have kids, they're welcome to go out to the children's ministry. They're also welcome to stay in here if, uh, if you want them to. But um, anyway, all right. So I hope everybody had a super great uh, Thanksgiving time. Just a blessed day. Uh, every day is a blessed day, but uh, always a great opportunity just to rest and to reflect uh, on all the things uh, that we have to be thankful for. So everything's sort of back in swing this week. As Pastor Chris mentioned, our uh, small groups and life groups and regroup is back. They're all back on the schedule. And just for a couple of weeks, because then we'll break, um, because who can even believe that uh, December and Christmas are uh, upon us uh, nearly. So looking forward to that. I super appreciated uh, the reading that James did today, and I especially appreciated that he wore his Vegas shirt as he read it. <laughs> James is from Vegas, just returned from Vegas, so that scripture must have been heavy on his heart and that shirt at the top of the pile today. So it all just worked out. The Spirit had that coordinated for us. So, hey, this morning we're going to be in uh, back in the book of Mark. So if you don't have a Bible today, uh, you will always want one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. So if you need one, just raise your hand or you're welcome to use a Bible that's on your phone. I'm teaching out of the New King James Version if you want to follow along in that version, but any version is a good version uh, of the Bible. So, well, that's not actually true. Most versions are good versions of the Bible. We're not going to get into this. Let's pray and just ask the Lord to, uh, to really bless our time uh, today. So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for this place that you have provided, Lord. We thank you for this time that you have appointed, Lord. We thank you for this church family, Lord, that you have given us, Lord, and, and all that we share, Lord, the blessings that we share as sons and daughters, Lord. We thank you for your gospel, Lord, which it's our privilege to proclaim um, we thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your spirit as he teaches us each and every week, Lord. And that's what we pray. Even now, as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church and that you would uh, bless your word, Lord, as it goes out this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 3 this morning, this uh, wonderful account that Mark gives us of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And I have to be honest, we are not going to get too far into this chapter. We're only going to look at the first six verses. But I, I hope that you will agree with me when we see that these are six very important verses. Uh, they include a very important kind of a marker for us in the ministry of Jesus, as well, I think, as some very important things, some great insights that the Spirit gives us, uh, just lessons for us as his followers, all about how we respond to the word of Jesus. And you remember just quickly, back in chapter 2 of Mark's account, Mark sort of gave us this grouping of this series of these early conflicts that Jesus had with the religious leaders as he was doing ministry there up in the Galilee, right? The scribes and the Pharisees who had taken note of his ministry. They'd taken note of this message. And remember, they had come all the way up to the Galilee in the north of Israel from down there at Jerusalem just to get their eyes on what was really going on up there with this man. And so we saw these, this series of initial conflicts where Jesus really started to challenge their religious legalism. All of these things that they had added on to the simplicity of the Jewish faith. We saw Jesus, remember, he forgave the sins of that paralyzed man. He fellowshiped there with those tax collectors 
collectors and those sinners there at the house of Matthew. And then we saw, last week, we saw the religious leaders try to question him about the issue first of fasting. And then finally, they brought up this issue of the Sabbath. Remember the way that they had followed him out there into the grain fields, Jesus and his disciples. And with each one of these encounters, we watched Jesus really confront their wrong ideas about the religion, about all these rabbinic writings, all of these rituals, all of these rules that they had allowed to really creep into and really to corrupt what God had intended for his people. And in the midst of it, though, I think we also saw so beautifully this brand new thing we said that Jesus was doing. Right, this new kingdom that he was establishing, this new gospel that he was proclaiming. And last week, we really saw the marks of that message upon our lives. Remember the mercy and the grace and the joy and the freedom that the gospel really brings into our lives. Now, this morning, Mark's going to give us, at the beginning here of chapter 3, yet one more of these conflicts that Jesus is going to go head-to-head again with the scribes and the Pharisees. And it is yet another conflict about the Sabbath. It takes place on the Sabbath. But this time we're going to see it moves from this kind of a what was an intimate encounter out there in the grain fields. Now it's going to become this very public kind of a confrontation during the weekly services there in a synagogue back in Capernaum. So look where we we jump in right here in verse 1 of Mark chapter 3, where we read just the first phrase. It says, he entered the synagogue again. Now, just in this, I think we need to pause just for a second and make note of the fact that here's Jesus back in the synagogue, even though at this point, He knew that he was already at odds with all of these religious leaders, and the synagogue now had become enemy territory. Now, if I were Jesus, right, which is a good thing that I'm not Jesus for for a number of reasons, but if I were Jesus, I probably would have stayed up there on the Mount of Beatitudes, right, where the, the multitudes, remember, they were up there hungrily embracing the message, And yet what we see is that throughout the entire ministry of Jesus, he never abandons the synagogue service. He continues to attend despite the problems and the challenges and the oppositions. He continues to look for any opportunity that he can to minister to people and to impact their lives in any way that he could, anywhere that he could, and to continue to confront this legalism of these religious leaders. It's like he's meeting them right there on their own turf because at this point, even this early in Jesus' ministry, understand there is a very, very real war that's going on. There's this spiritual war now that is going on between Jesus and these Jewish religious leaders. And this is the war that's being fought over the heart and the soul and the mind and the strength of people, right? Of God's people. Because Judaism under these religious leaders had been taken over at this point by this man-made legalism. And Jesus is going to take every opportunity he can to make us stand against it every single time he comes up against it because he does not like it. Remember we said from our text last time, God simply doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to try to improve upon his word or to try to improve upon this relationship that he wants to have and what he wants it to be like and what he wants it to look like. And so every time we're going to see that Jesus comes up against it, he will not budge in exposing it. Exposing it for just this nonsense that it is. He won't back down. Again, you know, as if God could be distressed, but he was distressed enough about what Judaism had become. He certainly was not going to allow Christianity now to be corrupted and taken over also. And it's important for us to remember that he still has that very same attitude towards all of this kind of stuff even today. 
right? The author to the Hebrews tells us what? That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so here he is. He's back in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Luke tells us in his account of this same passage that Jesus taught the Bible study there in the synagogue again that day. But we're going to see now as we go through that there were some people who were there that day who were much more interested in what they thought Jesus might do than anything that he might say. Because notice what Mark tells us next about the gathering that day. So at the end of verse 1 and then on into verse 2. So it says, he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And so they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Now they, of course, refers to our good friends, the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? So they were there on that day for one reason, and that was to find a reason to bring an accusation against Jesus. And so they were watching him very, very closely. Right? So, and as they are watching him there in the synagogue, in each of their minds, right, to a man, their minds were filled with one single thought. They weren't there certainly to listen to anything that Jesus had to stay in the Bible study, right? Their minds aren't filled with this, wow, you know, we've never heard the scriptures taught like this. Wasn't that an amazing, but that's not what was going on in their minds at all. To a person, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, they hadn't come to worship, but to watch, right? They weren't there looking for fruit. They had come to find fault. They didn't come to commune with the Lord, but they came to confront the Lord. And to confront him specifically again about the Sabbath. Which when you think about it is just amazing because we remember when we left off last week that Jesus had very sufficiently schooled them out in the grain field about the heart behind the Sabbath. If you look up just a couple of verses in your Bible, it says in, at the end of chapter 2 that he said to them that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Then he says, therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, he said to them effectively, look, I created the Sabbath, right? I created everything, including the Sabbath, and I'm here to tell you what the purpose of the Sabbath was. It was never to be a burden to man, but it was always to be a blessing. It was supposed to be a day of rest, not a day of rules. And yet here these guys are. They're absolutely relentless. They're going to go one more round, and this time they're going to do it, as we said, in this very public place because... They knew they were in a situation here where they could trap Jesus. They knew that they were sure that Jesus would do something in this situation to break the traditions that were related to the Sabbath because, look back at verse 1, Mark tells us that there was this man who was there who had a withered hand. Now, some of your translations might say he had a shriveled hand or a paralyzed hand. And the, the Greek word that's used there is an interesting one because it tells us that he hadn't been born that way. Right? So, so his condition was something that had happened to him during the course of his lifetime, maybe uh, through disease or some kind of a childhood accident or maybe even some kind of a, a, an accident uh, at work as an adult. Now, in Luke's gospel, because Luke, we know, is a doctor, right? So Dr. Luke notices things perhaps that other people don't notice, includes these details that other people don't. But Dr. Luke tells us that it was this man's right hand that was withered or was paralyzed. And probably like most of the world, like, like most of us in this room, he was probably right-handed. So this is his good hand, right? His right hand, his best hand that's withered. It was his make a living, go to work, provide for your family, provide for yourself kind of hand that was withered. In fact, the Christian historian Jerome tells us that there's strong evidence that this man had been a stonemason, right? At least he had been one before this happened to him. So here he sits in this synagogue that day with no idea that he is about to become the focus of heaven and earth. Right? He is about to become the focus of time and eternity. I mean, this incident concerning his life 
is going to outlive, Jesus said, the heavens and the earth, right? He said that the heaven and earth will pass away. He says, but my word will by no means pass away. So here in this little synagogue, this man's about to become the center of attention. His life is about to be changed like he never imagined. Right? He had no idea what this day holds. And, and all of that to say, that's why it's very important that you never miss church. right? Because you just never know what could happen while preaching to the choir. Right, obviously, but so, but for these Jews, right, for the scribes and the Pharisees, none of that mattered. All that mattered to them, this man was nothing more than a test case for them. He was an opportunity that they thought they could trap Jesus because, again, according to their interpretation, right, of their traditions, right, remember those 40 full chapters that we talked about last week that the rabbis had written about how one was to observe the Sabbath. Remember, God said, all God said was just don't do any work on the Sabbath, but then they had superimposed upon that all of these crazy ideas that go way beyond what God had ever intended it to be. Now, as their ideas related specifically to helping somebody physically on the Sabbath, here's what they believed. They believed you could do whatever would save a person's life, but you couldn't do anything more. You couldn't do anything more for someone than that. For example, if a person sustained a deep gash or a deep cut, you could stop the bleeding to save their life. Right? You could put a compress on it or you could apply a tourniquet to it but only to stop the bleeding. And once you were able to stop the bleeding and they weren't in danger of dying on that day, then you weren't allowed to stitch up that wound at all because that needed to wait until Sunday, right? That had to wait until the next day because if the injury was no longer an immediate threat to their life, then to perform any kind of a medical procedure, that would have represented what they classified as unnecessary work. So that's how they looked at these things. If a person broke a bone, you could do what you needed to to make them comfortable, but you couldn't reset the bone, right? If that bone wasn't gonna kill them, you had to leave it alone. If somebody got a cut, you could put a bandage on the cut, but you couldn't put ointment on it, because putting ointment on it would be practicing medicine and you'd have to put the ointment on it the next day. Now, ladies, you will be very relieved to know that you could give birth on the Sabbath day. That was allowed. And you could even have somebody help you to do that. Now, this is interesting. If a wall fell on someone, you could remove enough of the rock off of the body to determine whether the person was still alive or not. And if he was still alive, you could continue moving only enough rock to get them out from under the load. But if you removed enough rock to discover that he was dead, you had to leave him there for the next day because anything else you did would be labor. Again, these are the things that Jesus is dealing with here in the mindset, right? And so just the presence of this man with the withered hand, they knew had set up this perfect scenario to trap him because this man's injury obviously wasn't life-threatening. And yet they knew that just his presence would have put Jesus into a very precarious position. Now, knowing that, I think is kind of neat because if you stop and think about it, what this tells us is that they already did know at least a couple of wonderful things at this point about our Jesus. Number one, of course, they knew that he could heal people because they'd seen him do it so many times, right? And so they also knew they had to know that Jesus was greater than they were in power. And yet what they just simply refused to entertain, they couldn't make that logical leap, the implication that, hey, if Jesus is greater than we are in power, then isn't it possible he's also greater than us in our understanding of God, right? Our understanding of the scriptures. Isn't it possible that he might be right and that we might be wrong in the ways that we're interpreting God's law about the Sabbath? But of course, they couldn't go there at all. After all, 
they were the religious experts who were there, right? And not even God himself could convince them otherwise. Right? Maybe you know some people a little bit like that. But, but here's the second thing, which I think is even is a better thing, that they wonderfully knew about Jesus. And what they knew is that when Jesus walked into any situation at all, they knew that his attention would automatically be drawn first and foremost to that person in the room with the greatest need. They knew somehow that Jesus was going to walk in and no matter how crowded that synagogue was, that he would come in and he would immediately notice the person there with the greatest need and he would be drawn to that person to help that person. They already knew that that was a characteristic of Jesus. So now they watched him very closely to see what he would do. And what do you think Jesus did? I'm going to give you one guess. He comes into the synagogue. Here was this man with the withered hand. Look what it says in verse 3. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Did you guys guess right or did you read ahead? Jesus did just exactly what they thought he would do. He noticed that man in his infirmity, and then he singles him out to minister to him. And can I just say that Jesus is still doing that even today? And I think that this is something so exciting to know about our God, to know that about Jesus this morning, as he is present here with us through his spirit, that if you are sitting here today, right, and before the eyes of heaven, you are seen in your need. You have the immediate attention of the Lord Jesus, and he is here, and he is going to minister to you. And so again, here's the point. Don't ever not go to church because you think you are just too messed up or too withered or have too many needs. Because you're the one that he's going to look right to and that he's going to minister to when you come. You'd be amazed how many people think, well, I can't possibly go to church. I have too many problems. But let me tell you this morning, you go to church. That's what it's there for, right? This is the place where the Lord is looking and where he's aware of your need. And very often in this corporate setting, through our worship and our time together, this is where he will, by his spirit, address that need. And I think it's not only a wonderful thing to know about Jesus himself, but this is such an important thing for us as his disciples to be known for this very same wonderful thing. Right, that as each one of us are growing in Christ and we're growing in Christ-likeness, this very characteristic should become characteristic of our lives in any environment that we're in, but especially here in church. Right, for us, like Jesus, whether we're walking into the sanctuary or we're walking out to the patio or we're walking back into the fellowship hall. And as we go into any kind of environment that we just instinctively kind of do a scan and we say, Lord, who's the person here with the greatest need? Who's the person here who's standing or who's sitting alone or, or looks like they're struggling here in this moment or just in their life? You know, the, the, I understand the natural tendency for us as Christians, right, in our flesh and apart from the Spirit, but our natural tendency is to always gravitate, even at church, we always gravitate toward those people who we already know. Those people who we already know well and who are in our comfort zone. And frankly, we usually gravitate toward healthy people. But to change that up and to look and to say, you know what? Who's the person who's sitting alone here in this situation? Who's this person that's crying, right? Who's the person that has the greatest need in this environment that I'm walking into? And as we start to become more and more like Jesus, right, the more we're being transformed, as Paul says, into the image, right, from glory to glory by the Spirit of God, the more we become others-centered, 
the more instinctively we'll start to lay aside our own desire just to be with the comfortable people. And now we'll start, like Jesus was, to be drawn to the person who has the greatest need. And I'm here to tell you, this isn't just the job of the professionals, right? This isn't just for the pastors or for the leaders. This is for all of us as believers in Jesus. You may have heard the expression that church is not a spectator sport, right? And I think that we need to be so very, very careful. We live in such a self-focused culture, right, where everything is all about me, especially now as it relates to the church, where everybody now comes in and they sort of evaluate what a good church is, right, based on how it, what it do for me, right? What did I get out of it? Or God forbid what the Yelp reviews say. Can I just tell you that the church is not a coffee shop? Here's a great story. I don't even know if it's a true story, but I hope it was a true story. There was a pastor who was standing at the back door of the church after service, right? And of course, greeting people as they left the sanctuary. And one guy came and said very casually to the pastor, he said, well, you know, I just came to visit and to see what you had to offer. And the pastor very quick-wittedly said, well, what do you have to offer, he said to the man. And I love that, whether it really happened or not, because I think that it just snaps a person out of that mindset, right? It snaps us out of that self-focused, self-centered mindset, and it puts us more into the mindset of Jesus, right? That the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So let me ask you this question. What is it that you have to offer to the body of believers as we all come together and gather here? Because the Bible says that each one of us has something unique to offer, right? That God has gifted you, right? Every one of you, every one of us in a very special and unique way that as we all come together, then we create this environment where ministry happens and where lives can be touched and where healing can take place, right? Because the church is supposed to be a welcoming place and a warm place and a place where people in need do get noticed and where we're, we do make sure that people are okay. And I don't need to tell you, right, just how fragmented our culture is, how deeply disjointed it is, and how easily it is, especially here in this valley, right, for someone to be living here in the area while the rest of their friends and family, right, everyone they know and everyone they love lives somewhere else entirely, and they are now here all alone here in this valley, at least in terms of real meaningful relationships. And yet we have that one place to have relationships. We have that one place where I can bring my tears and where I can bring my hurts and not just to be ignored and where everybody's not pretending that I'm not crying on a bench in the sanctuary. We have that place and it's the church. And what happens though is when a person is not noticed and when a person is not acknowledged in that way, and when somebody doesn't get to them and notice them when they come in, then the question we have to ask ourselves is where in the world else are they going to find that kind of connection? Because this is something that is supposed to be unique to the body of Christ. That if you have a need, you come here. You just get yourself here. Get yourself to church and somebody's going to see you. Somebody's going to minister to you, just like Jesus is about to do here with this man. But he's not going to do it until he tries once again to minister even to these self-righteous, legalistic religious leaders. And Jesus does that. Look in the very next verse. He ministers to these guys by asking them a very simple but a very probing question about the Sabbath. Look in verse 4. It says, Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? It says, But they kept silent. Well, you bet they kept silent. 
because they knew that if they answered, it would simply expose them in their error. Of course it was right to do good and not evil. Of course it was right to save life rather than to kill on any day, let alone the Sabbath and including the Sabbath. And the point that Jesus is making is simply this. Here with this real authority, he is letting them know that God never intended the Sabbath to be a limitation in the good that we want to do for people. And that in their strange and their strict misinterpretations about the Sabbath law, it was restricting the expression of doing good for other people. And because it did that, because their interpretations restricted God's command here, they didn't represent the intent or the heart of God himself. It's like Jesus says, look, how in the world can your traditions be right if your traditions make it unlawful to do good to another human being, but they allow for a plot to do evil against me, right? Isn't it a bit ironic? They thought in their twisted reasoning that it was wrong for Jesus to perform a miracle on the Sabbath, but it was not wrong for them to plot his destruction on the Sabbath as well, right? Anyway you slice it, it was surely a better thing to be thinking about helping a man than it was to be thinking about killing a man. And it's no wonder these guys had nothing to say. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to heal this man, okay, in just a moment. And I'm sorry if I ruined the ending for you, right? But Jesus is going to heal him, and he knows that they are going to condemn him for doing it. But you can bet that he's going to make sure that before he does it, and before they condemn him, he wants them to know that they are so twisted in their thinking that they're about to condemn him for doing good. And they knew exactly what it was Jesus was saying to them, right? The message, I think, had made it through loud and clear because you see that their response is no response. They were silent. Right? What could they say? Now, just as a quick point of personal application here for our lives, it is very hard to trap God in an argument, right? It's very hard to win a debate or an argument that you are having with God. So it's better just not to try to do that, right? What could these guys say? They had been trapped by their own trick, or as the English, right, hoist with their own petard, or blown up by their own, whatever you want to say. They are not going to respond to him and admit that they're the ones who are wrong in this environment. Right? They're in front of all of the synagogue. Their pride and their sense of self-righteousness just simply wouldn't allow it. And Jesus knew it. And look now at what Mark tells us just in the first half of the next verse because this is important and so significant. Before Jesus, Jesus even heals this man, verse 5, it says that when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of of their hearts. Now make a little note if you if you make notes in your Bible, make a note of this verse cuz this is the only explicit reference to Jesus's anger in all of the New Testament. Now we assume that he was angry the two times that he cleansed the temple, right? Driving out the money changers and making whips and and turning over tables. And yet this is the only time the scriptures actually tell us that he was angry in those words. And that's not by accident. Jesus was never angry with tax collectors or sinners. But what he was always angry at was the self-righteousness of the religious leaders. right? And in this particular case... He was angry and his heart was grieved at the hardness of their hearts towards God's mercy in the face of human suffering. And the Holy Spirit here, writing through Mark, he wants us to be very aware that this is something that makes Jesus very, very angry and righteously angry. Here Jesus has this suffering man, right, standing there right up in front, Remember, look back at the beginning of verse 3. He said to them, when he came in, he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Jesus had called him out of the crowd, and he called him right up here, right in the front. 
And he did it for a specific reason. And that's this, that at that specific time, each and every one of those scribes and the Pharisees would have been sitting right up there in the front row because those were the most esteemed seats in the place. It's not like it is today where no one sits in the front row, right? I wrote that in faith, assuming that no one would sit in the front row today, but I knew I was okay because no one ever does, right? Most often, these are the emptiest places because everybody likes to sit in the back. Now, I reflected on that, and I know that in our church, at least, it's because you guys are all so humble and you're so unassuming. There's no scribes or Pharisees here, or it's because you guys were all the bad kids in school who sat at the back of the class... Yeah, constantly in trouble. There might be a mix of both in our little church. At any rate, right, these guys would have been right here in the front rows. Jesus had called this suffering man forward to stand there right in front of them physically so that they would have front row seats literally to what it was he was about to do. Right, so that they would see him and I think be forced to really look at this man. Because what Jesus wanted them to see, what he was saying to them in doing this is look at this man. This is a man. Right, this isn't just some theological position. This is not a rule in a book. This is a human being who feels and loves and breathes and has a heart and has a past and a present and a future and a family and had dreams and goals just like everybody else in this room. This is nothing less than a real life human being who is being impacted by your restrictions, by your interpretations and your traditions. Those things don't just simply stop on a page they impact people and they are impacting this person in a negative way. They are adding to his suffering because your religion, Jesus says, is making his life miserable. That's what made Jesus angry. And that's what still makes him angry today. And of course, it's a righteous anger. Right? It comes out of a concern for God and the way that he is being misrepresented in these kinds of situations and the way that people are being treated in these kinds of situations. Religion should never, ever drive people further away from God. They should religion should never place more barriers between people and God or misrepresent God to them or misrepresent his heart for them and his desire to be intimate and personal with them and to touch and to heal them. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 18 that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he wasn't simply talking about the children. He was talking about anyone who's a follower of his. He said that anyone who causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And when religion or when religious people or when theology or theological positions are doing that, it makes Jesus angry. He was angry with these men because they were leading other people straight into their own sin. And he was angry with them because he was presenting them with a perfect opportunity to change their minds about him and about their traditions, but they refused to change their minds and he knew that they were going to reject him instead. He's going out of his way here to give them this wonderful object lesson and this crystal clear illustration to help them see that what they were doing was wrong. Could Jesus have done this miracle on a different day? Absolutely. Could Jesus have done this miracle in a different, more private setting? Absolutely. But he chose to do it at this time and in this place, not just to minister to that man, but he's trying to minister to these men as well. And they were unwilling and they sit silently in the hardness of their own hearts. And so you can imagine, right, 
if you put yourself in that particular place, right here in the middle of the synagogue service, I would say the atmosphere at this point is pretty electric. Right? You've got this infirmed man standing here. You've got the Pharisees all sitting there. You have Jesus having just publicly rebuked the highest ranking religious leaders in the land. He has brought them theologically to a standstill, so much so that they had nothing that they could say in front of him before this crowd. And nobody talks to these religious men in this way, let alone gets angry with them. And yet that's exactly where we are. Look again in verse 5. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, this verse probably isn't that surprising to us. But just pretend that you don't know what's about to happen. Right here he's got this man standing in front of this entire audience, right? Here he is standing there in his brokenness and his physical deformity and his infirmity and all Jesus says to this man is what? He says, stretch out your hand. Asking this man to do something that was absolutely, you don't have to be a doctor to know that this is something that's absolutely physically impossible. He was asking this man to move his paralyzed hand when it was still paralyzed. Because notice in the verse, when did the healing take place? It was as the man put forth the effort, then God did the rest. Notice the order. It says that the man stretched it out and then his hand was restored. And very often, God will ask us to do something that we believe or something that we know is absolutely impossible, but that in his command comes the power for us to do it. And this man absolutely could have questioned what Jesus was asking. He could have given Jesus a lot of excuses and they would have been good ones. Right? How can you ask me to do that? Right? Can't you see what's wrong with me? Don't you know what happened to me? Don't you know all the things that I've been through? The man would have been justified in saying all of that, and yet instead, standing there in the midst of those people at the front of that synagogue, he simply attempted to obey the command of Jesus. And it was as he attempted to obey, then he discovered the power that he could obey. And that happens all the time in the Christian life, no matter what withered area we're talking about, right? But it happens right there in that nanosecond, right? And it's the difference of whether my life is going to turn into a miracle or whether my life is just going to remain withered, whether we're talking about whole lives or parts of lives. We have this command of God to do something. And then the question is, am I going to endeavor to obey that command and then discover the power to obey it? Or am I just going to fall back on all of the reasons and all of the excuses why I know that I can't do that? And so to me, I think here we have one of the greatest lessons, one of the most practical lessons, most wonderful and encouraging lessons in all of the Bible concerning the Christian life. And that is that Jesus never gives a command except that he will always couple it with the power to obey the command. Right? Jesus' commands are coupled with his power. He never gives us a command independent of the ability that we need to accomplish it, right? He doesn't command us without enabling us. And that is true of every single command that God has given in the volume of this book. Every single one of them. God stands behind every one of those and he is eager to pour out his power on the life that will simply take that first step to try to obey it even the really hard ones. Remember the really hard ones we looked at in the book of Colossians. Remember all of that putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new one? You hoped I wouldn't bring that up again, right? 
Remember that we're supposed to put off all of these. We're supposed to put off anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And then a couple verses later, Paul says that as the elect of God, holy and beloved, we're to put on tender mercies and kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. He says, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. And by the way, be thankful, he says. But each and every one of those commands, for us to just simply say, Lord, this is a challenge for me, but I want to be like you in this situation, and so I'm going to choose not to do this thing, but to do this thing instead. Not to react in this way, but to react in this different way. I'm going to choose not to wear those worn out rags, but I'm going to choose instead to put on that beautiful new heavenly wardrobe. And it works just like that in whatever situation that you are facing in your life. Again, Jesus never gives us a commandment without coupling with that commandment the ability that we need to keep it. But here's the thing. We will only discover that power when we move past the excuses. When we take that moment of faith and just take that first step and obey him, that's when we start to experience the power and the restoration of that withered part. And then we experience the miracle of the changed life that's on the other side of it. Right? Remember when Paul wrote to the Philippians one of my favorite verses, Philippians 2.13. He says that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God gives us both the will to do, right? He gives us that, in, that desire. He implants in our hearts that desire to do what he wants us to do. And then he gives us the power that we need to do it. He gives us the desire to do his will. He couples it with the power to accomplish it. He puts his heart in our hearts, but then we need to let it work itself out into our character. The, the Christian life is this miraculous life that can only be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, or it's not really the Christian life, right? You may not have a withered hand, like this man does, but you may have a withered heart, right? a broken heart, or you have a broken mind, or you have whatever it is that's withered that's going on in your life. And to simply turn it, you know, into your Bible and you say, okay, you know, what is it? What do I do with my guilt? What do I do with my worry or my unforgiveness? What do I do with my anger and my frustration? And then you find where the Bible says, well, this is what you need to do. And so often we can look at what God tells us to do. You guys will tell me if I'm the only one, right? But we look at what God tells us to do and sometimes it just seems to be so simplistic. Sometimes we can read what the Bible tells us and it's like, you know, God just doesn't understand. He doesn't understand how complicated my particular problem is. Because if he did, if he really understood how complicated my particular problem is, then he would never say something so simplistic as the solution to it. He just doesn't understand the depth of my issues. But can I tell you guys something because I love you? That is not the language of faith. That is the lie of our culture. And that is the thing that keeps people in bondage to their infirmities. And it's what keeps so many lives just withering away. It keeps people trapped in their brokenness because it discounts the power that the Lord imparts, right? That he infuses through his spirit into the situation when we finally do take just that first step, that scary first step of faith, right? Exodus 14, the Red Sea divided to make a way for God's people when they simply obeyed his command and started to move forward. 
right? We studied it ourselves, Joshua 3. The mighty rivers, the mighty waters of the Jordan were stopped only when the feet of the priests touched them because they were stepping out and doing the command of God. The apostles went out in the entire book of Acts at the command of Jesus, and it was only as they then started to preach and minister, then that divine power started to flow right out of their untrained lives, and people's hearts were wonderfully broken, and they were miraculously regenerated. So here's the really practical lesson to learn, and it is a hard, intensely practical lesson is that the strength to serve Jesus is given only as we simply put forth the effort to obey Jesus. Right? Seas don't open, rivers don't divide for feet that are just standing still on the banks waiting for the waters to part. Right? That withered hand in your life is not going to grow strong if you just leave it hanging lifelessly at your side. And your cold heart is never gonna thaw into warmth and tenderness if you don't put forth some kind of loving effort. But as you do, as you just step out and you use whatever little strength you have to simply obey what Jesus is asking, right? If you just stand up and then stretch out, then he will supernaturally meet you there in that instant and he will match your feeble human effort with his awesome and unlimited heavenly power. Right? The Christian life is a supernatural life. This is not an academic exercise. This is not a textbook study. This is not a lab experiment. This is not like anything else in the world. Right? God is on his throne this morning and his son Jesus is sitting at his right hand and they are in control of everything. There's nothing that's too difficult for them. This is not hard for them. This is what they do and our job is simply to believe it and to act on it like this man did. Because, now hear me in this, how I choose to respond to the word of God will ultimately determine whether or not areas in my life are going to stay withered or not. This man here just had one specific command of Jesus regarding this one physical ailment from which he suffered. We have a whole Bible full of these exceedingly great and precious promises, right, regarding what he's able to do in all of these other areas of our lives. All of these areas in our lives that are withered up Right? This man's story is such a wonderful story, and I think it's an important story. And of course, it's such a powerful testimony, right? certainly for us today. But imagine how it rocked the world of these people that were sitting there in that synagogue on that Sabbath day. So much so, look at what Mark tells us happened next in verse 6. It says, then the Pharisees went out and immediately they repented of their hardened hearts and of their unbelief. They said, nobody can do this but the Son of God. We were wrong about you, Jesus, and we want to follow after you. Wait, does yours not say that? See, that's why you have to have a Bible and follow along. So what actually happened, Mark tells us, is then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Right? These are the men who are leading Israel. These are the men who are claiming to speak for God and claiming to represent God. They have no humility at all in their lives and they are intent now only on destroying him. Right? These are these hardened hearts that rejected Jesus. So much so that they conspire here with the Herodians, right? These are their arch enemies. The Herodians weren't a religious group. They were a group of Jews that were sympathetic to King Herod, right? In this case, Herod Antipas, right? One of the long line of the Herods. And Antipas at this time ruled as kind of a puppet king at the pleasure of Rome over that whole region of the Galilee. Most all Jews despised Herod intensely, right? They obeyed his laws reluctantly. And so it was especially surprising here that the Pharisees, 
right? The strictest of the strict, the Jewish of the Jews, the most Jewish of the whatever you want to say, that they would join themselves with these disloyal kind of political climbers, right? In any other circumstance, the Pharisees would have considered the Herodians to be unclean. They would have wanted nothing to do with them, but now they were prepared to enter into this unholy alliance, right? You've got these stern champions of religious orthodoxy now who are in this collusion and collaboration with these worldly corrupt politicians of the day because their hearts were so filled with hate and they would stop now at nothing. And understand that Herod, we're going to learn, had just brought about the death of John the Baptist. So no doubt the Pharisees here thought maybe his party could be equally successful in helping them get rid of Jesus. So verse 6 here, I said we were going to get to an important marker in the ministry of Jesus. And this is the climax of this first section of these conflicts up in the Galilee. It's also Mark's first explicit reference to the death of Jesus, which now starts to kind of cast a shadow over the rest of his mission and his ministry. So there's so much that I think is wrapped up here in just these six verses. And as we close this morning, there might be some of you who sit here today and maybe you were raised in this same kind of a very legalistic environment, right? All of this, you know, do this and do this and do this, and this is how you make yourself good enough for God. And you couldn't even keep one of those things. And so your conclusion was, you know what, I just have to keep away from church because I have no hope of having a relationship with God. I have no more ability to live up to all the things laid out in this book than the man in the moon does. Right? I mean, every time I try to change something in my life, it's just failure after failure after failure. So I just give up because I can't possibly become perfect and I can't come to Jesus. But can I just tell you that is not at all how it works. You come to him. You come to him just the way you are and you come to him just as weak as you are. And then he knows how to bring the power in through the word of God. He knows how to tell you, this is what I want you to do, right? This is what it looks like. And then to give you the power to do it. But you have to be born again in order to do that. You can, you can live, you can be raised in a, in a legalistic, man-made tradition, a religious environment, and you can be further away from what God intends a relationship to really be than if you were raised by a pack of wolves out in the forest somewhere, because at least then you wouldn't have to unlearn anything. You can be raised in this legalistic kind of religious environment and never know that it is simply about a personal relationship with God. It's simply about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be raised without ever knowing that I need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Without ever knowing that salvation is simply a free gift, it's something that you can't possibly earn and there's no need to try but it's simply there for the asking and it's there for the receiving and that God wants to begin that relationship with you through Jesus Christ even this morning. And when we're finished here today, there will be people up here in the front right after service and they would love to pray with you to begin that kind of a relationship today. I'm here to tell you it's real and it's wonderful and it's there for the receiving because it is a gift. And you simply come forward as we start to worship and they would love to help you take that first step. Now, I know the majority of us here, you're already believers. And yet for so many, you may have those withered parts of your walk, those withered parts of your life where the Spirit is speaking to you even now this morning where you just simply need to step out in faith, right? Simply take that first small step of obedience and then watch the way that he answers that with his power. I know that it seems probably like it's way too big for you, but trust me, it is not too big for him, right? As he promised the apostle Paul, we're gonna close with this scripture, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. 
He said, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, Paul exclaims, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we we thank you, Lord, as we do each and every time, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that it does penetrate, Lord, even to the division of our soul and our spirit, Lord. We pray that your spirit, even now, would be using your word, Lord, to bring conviction where it needs to be brought, Lord, where you'd be using your word to bring comfort where it needs to be given. Lord, we do pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would be drawn unto you, Lord, that your spirit would be quickening their hearts even now. Lord, we pray for those who do know you, Lord, but have business to be done with you. Lord, we pray that you would also just be drawing them to you now, Lord. We Give us encouragement, Lord, in our spirits this morning, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.